You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We come now to the uh, eighth and final lecture in this introduction to moral philosophy, this mini-course. Up to this point, we've been looking at the very nature of a human act. How do I identify a human act? Uh, what is it distinguished from? And of course, one fast way would be to say that human acts are different, say, from the acts of giraffes or of uh, watermelon plants and things like that. But a more important and interesting, uh, relevant uh, way of distinguishing or isolating the human act is by comparing it with other activities or operations which are truly attributed to a human being, but which will be distinguished from human acts in Thomas's phrase by calling them acts of a man, acts of a human person. The great difference is that the human acts are those which are deliberately and freely initiated by the agent other activities which can be truly attributed uh, to the human agent very often are such that they can also be found in things other than human beings. That's the easiest way to isolate them. It shows that we have many things in common with other things. We don't just have characteristically human attributes, but also shared common attributes. But more importantly, perhaps, is the way in which we can distinguish human acts, those which are deliberately and freely executed from aspects of our activities which we don't intend. We consider the classical story of Oedipus and his mother Jocasta, where the two of them would be engaging as they think in one act and actually they are uh, performing another. And the question morally is, well, which of those do we attribute to, to them? And uh, on the assumption that the ignorance in which they act is not deliberately brought about by them or something for which we would hold them responsible, we would say quite seriously that they are not guilty of an act of incest. That isn't the act that they performed. That isn't what they set out to do and freely did. So this isolation of the human act, which is of course the subject of moral philosophy, is a topic of some intricateness itself. And that's why we dwelt on it to the degree that we did. The characteristic uh, then of the human action as such, the deliberate free action, is that it is undertaken for the sake of an end. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about that, the end-like quality of the object of action, and looked at uh, arguments of several kinds for there being an overriding end of human action. Once we had done that, we looked into the analysis of the elements of the human act, and what that brings us today to the crucial question, and that is, how do we morally appraise the action now that we've understood it, now that we understand, at least in this initial way, what its elements are? I want to come at this by reference, first of all, to a recent encyclical of Pope John Paul II called Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of the Truth. This is an encyclical which for English readers came to us prior to the English translation of the New Catechism of the Catholic Church. But as you see in reading the encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, it was written after the Catechism and presupposes the Catechism. So it's an oddity for English readers that the order of their arrival was reversed. 
If you look at the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor, and then at the second part of the Catechism, which deals with the moral life, with the Christian life, you will find that the Holy Father in the encyclical takes off from the very same gospel story that the Catechism employs. And that is the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the Holy Father, first of all, reflects on that and sees in it the fundamental question that we ask almost by dint of being alive, by acting at all. Our actions are contained implicitly in them, this question, what does it all mean? What's the purpose, not only of this act, but of acting at all? So that until we have clarified in our own mind what can serve us as an overriding purpose, the ultimate end of our lives, we're floundering, we're confused, we're fragmented. And so it is that this young man comes to Christ and asks that question. It comes out of, as we soon learn in following the story, it comes out of a life which is not just uh, fragmented and confused in the way that I suggest might be the case. He's looking for something more than he already has, as is revealed when Christ says to him, you want to know what you should do to be saved? Keep the commandments, keep the commandments. And then he begins to list them and they're the familiar mosaic law. And what's dominant in Christ's answer are negative precepts, what, what one shouldn't do. And then, as you remember, the young man says, well, I already do that. And uh, we might think that that's, that's quite a presumptuous kind of claim, but Christ accepts it at face value, so it must have been true. So this is a good person, we could say. Someone who is abiding by the commandments is not to be looked down upon, certainly, but rather looked up to. But then Christ goes on and says, well, if you would be perfect, then you should sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Now, what I want to draw attention to here is another theme that's been running through these lectures, and that is the relationship between the natural on the one hand and the supernatural on the other. There are several ways in which one could interpret that gospel story in a straightforwardly Christian way and simply distinguish between the precepts of the faith and counsels, counsels of perfection. The precepts being those which are binding on us all and the counsels of perfection being those which say religious take on, sell all they have and give to the poor, take the three vows of religion, poverty, chastity, and obedience. This is over and beyond as these are construed in the vows. These are certainly over and beyond what would be required or expected of a Christian. So it's possible to read that story simply in terms of greater or lesser intensity of the Christian life. But I want to suggest this as well that it's possible to see it as a relationship between natural morality and Christian morality. Insofar as the commandments which were given to Moses, although by the very fact that they're given to him on Mount Sinai by God, gives them a divine sanction, nonetheless the content of those precepts is not something that we would think makes them applicable only to the chosen people. Just think of them, think of the commandments that Christ reminds the rich young man of. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie, and so forth. These are not peculiar demands of the behavior of believers or of the chosen people, but these are common demands on human agents as such. So we could see in this gospel story, Christ, first of all, pointing to what would be expected of anyone to keep the commandments, that is, natural morality, what we've learned to call the precepts of natural law. Over and beyond these, of course, would be the peculiar and special and extra demand 
that are made of us as Christian believers. There's a different quality of our actions, uh, certainly insofar as they're animated by grace. They have, as animated by grace, a meritorious effect, which of course they could not have simply by dent of our own powers or natural effort. So in that sense, they're elevated and subsumed into a new order, aiming us towards an end, an ultimate end, union with God, which of course is not due to us or owed to us simply in terms of our being human beings. It's something more. You remember perhaps that remark of St. Augustine speaking of original sin, that it's a felix culpa, it's a happy fault, because when we're redeemed, we're not simply brought back to the condition of Adam and Eve, but elevated even beyond that. So in that sense, our last state is better than the state of Adam and Eve in paradise. So that reminder then of what has been a leitmotif, at least, of these lectures when we talk about moral philosophy as Catholic philosophers, we're always conscious of the fact, well, there's also moral theology. This isn't the last word on human behavior. But it's a very important word because one of the abiding elements of the Catholic tradition is that there is a compatibility, as we've been insisting, a compatibility between faith and reason. There's a compatibility between what anyone could come to know and ought to come to know about what is demanding upon him as a moral agent on the one hand and on the other, the new demands that are asked of us in the Christian dispensation where our lives, our actions, our relations with others are to be animated by love in the sense of Christian charity. So this as a reminder of several of our themes, but now to introduce what I want to dwell on today in this final lecture, how is it that we go about appraising human actions once we've gotten clarity as to what they are, what their structure is, and the like? And it's particularly relevant to refer to Veritatis Splendor, because in that encyclical, the Holy Father is laying out the Christian life in all of its amplitude. And he does this against the background of the fact that over some decades, there has been a series of magisterial documents responding to particular moral questions. For example, on sexual morality and taken sometimes glommed together, but sometimes it's taken one at a time on the pastoral care of homosexual persons, for example. Donum vitae, having to do with in vitro fertilization and surrogate parenthood and so forth. But these are very pointillistic documents, you might say. They aim at a particular question and give an answer to it. What the Holy Father wanted to do in Veritatis Splendor is to back up and recall the great context within which those prohibitions, as many of them were, have their appropriate place and take on their full significance as part of a whole and not simply as isolated prohibition. In chapter two of Veritatis Splendor, he recalls what the catechism calls the three fonts of morality. That is where we look chiefly in appraising a human action and deciding whether it is morally good and bad. And the Holy Father is recalling these for the somewhat melancholy reason that there's been a great deal of confusion about these in recent Catholic moral theology, and he is drawing attention to this so that at the same time that he's reinforcing our understanding of a true appraisal of human actions, he's warning us against the unfortunate fact that there has been some waffling or confusion on this matter. 
In Veritatis Splendor, when the Holy Father turns to how it is that we appraise moral actions, what is it that we look to in those actions as the place, the font of morality, he finds three of them. And in doing this, he is invoking a very traditional doctrine, and one which, as the encyclical points out, is to be found in St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae, that part of it that we've been looking at. Indeed, in questions 18, 19, and 20, Thomas is concerned with the goodness and badness of human acts in general in 18, and then in question 19, the goodness and badness of the interior act, and in 20, the goodness or badness of the external act, the commanded act, when we actually have participated voluntary acts, moving our limbs and the like. These are three of the longest questions in the whole Summa. Obviously, it's a matter of great importance and great precision, a precision which is possible largely because of what has gone before, the very careful analysis of action and the elements of action that we talked about a few lectures ago and characterizes seeming somewhat Baroque. But now when we, when we think of how it is that we morally assess what we have done, we can easily realize on reflection that our acts don't always reach full fruition in what we can call the complete human act, but sometimes they're the beginnings of an action of a little bit beyond that, a little bit further. Sometimes there's a full intention to act and we're simply prevented from acting, let's say, by external circumstances. And the question arises, well, what do you make of an act like that? Morally, is it good or bad? I was just about to wipe out my enemy and a rock fell, hit my arm, I lost my weapon and I was unable to carry out my intention. Should I take credit for not having done something wrong or have I sinned in my heart in this particular case? So these are important. These divisions and distinctions that Thomas introduced are turn out to be very important in the appraisal of human acts. If we are going to go beyond, as of course we want to do not only in Christian morality but in morality in general, go beyond merely the overt actions of people where the only criterion, uh, let's say, of evil would be, did you harm someone else? Uh, that's a very minimal, important, but very minimal sort of criterion for whether or not an action is good or bad. In soap operas and in racy novels, couples who engage in adultery usually are found to be appraising what they're doing with them. We're not hurting anyone else. Uh, well, maybe not, but nonetheless, that, as I say, is a very minimal sort of criterion for appraising the morality of the action, which involves, in this case, at least two people. But even in the case of actions which involve, certainly from the point of view of their focus, only ourselves, there is a moral appraisal of them. The harm criterion would be to consider all acts to be acts of justice in the narrow sense, that is involving the good of others. But morality is a good deal more than justice. And when it is, of course, justice takes on a complete sense, general justice, as it was called, in the sense that St. Joseph is called in the Gospels a just man. He's not just being said to be fair, but in all ways a moral and a good person. The analysis, again now, of the human accident that uh, Thomas has given us gives us three places to look when we're appraising the morality of the act. What are those three places? The end for which we act, the object, the thing that we do in order to achieve that end, and the circumstances in which we act. The traditional view is, which is repeated by the Holy Father in Veritatis Splendor, 
is this, that in order for an action to be good, it must be good in all of those dimensions, the end, the object, and of the circumstances in which we act. If there's a deficiency or a defect in any one of those, the act taken as a whole is vitiated and is a bad action. For example, I might have a good objective. I might say that I want to give alms to the poor. And certainly, if we just looked at that as an objective, it would be quite easy to say that is a befitting sort of goal for a human being as a member of a society and so on, just from a natural point of view. But if my name is Robin Hood, and it turns out that in order to fulfill this objective, I am lifting money out of other people's pockets and distributing it to the poor, our appraisal of the action then, the total action, would be quite different. And we would say that this end is vitiated by seeking to achieve it by these means. The end doesn't justify the means is the traditional phrase that captures that. So a good end does not justify a bad mean nor can an action which involves doing something that is good, this deed, but turning it to a bad purpose, can the total act be construed as morally good. That is, if one gives alms in order to be praised by other people, to be seen by men, as I'm thinking, of course, again, of a gospel story, that vitiates the action. That vitiates the action. And so, too, we could have an action which is good with respect to its objective or end, and the way of achieving that end is good, but the circumstances are wrong. It's just inappropriate, let's say, for people to engage in a certain action in certain circumstances. So that would vitiate the act. So all of those things have to be taken into account. The good arises from the conjunction of goodness in all of those three fonts of morality, sources of morality, as the Catechism calls them. Now, as I mentioned, when the Holy Father in Veritatis Splendor recalls these, he is not only reminding us of this sound and solid doctrine, but he is also lamenting the fact that there has been some confusion on these matters. And as a result of this confusion, people, Christians, have been getting a bad advice with respect to actions which from time immemorial have been considered to be wrong in themselves. There are certain prohibitions which are taken to be exceptionless, that is, certain acts are prohibited which are such that they can never be permissibly or illicitly performed by a human being because they destroy the moral good as such. And the prohibitions in the Decalogue are precisely actions of that kind. There's never a case where lying would be morally illicit. There's never a case where adultery would be morally illicit. There's never a case where murder would be morally illicit. Now, there are complications here, which it's well at least to gesture toward. It is possible for us to put the matter somewhat algebraically and say A takes the life of B. Is this good or bad? Or this man lies with this woman. Is this good or bad? Or a man lies with a woman. Is this good or bad? And as we consider the statements, we don't know. We don't know. There isn't enough information yet to appraise them as morally good or bad. That may be sufficient, of course, to get a definition of what we could call the physical act, that is, the taking of a life of another. What does that amount to physiologically? And so, too, with the other case, so that we could get a description, which would be an identical description when we move to the moral order and say, ah, but this is the case of the public executioner taking the life of a tried and condemned person on the one hand, and over here, 
we have a burglar taking the life of a homeowner who has surprised him in his work. In both cases, we could get the same physical activity, we would get the same description of one, say, kind of scientific description of one person taking the life of another, but we could have a very different moral appraisal depending on further information as to what the act actually amounts to, who the agents are, what they're up to, and who the recipient of the agency is. That's a very important distinction. When we analyze the human act, we could say you could talk on that level of an activity successfully achieving its end, and that would be its good, let's say, as a sort of natural event. But that doesn't take us yet to the realm of morality. Here we have to know what is it that an agent is proposing to himself to do. That is, what is the objective that he has in mind? And there we have to ask ourselves, is that a fitting objective? Is that something which it would be good to pursue or bad? And depending on that appraisal, that would be uh, decisive, if it's bad, for any full act within which the pursuit of that objective formed a part. So too, if we look at what is being done, the object of the act, as it's called, what we're tempted to call the means, what Thomas sometimes calls the proximate end of the act, as opposed to the remote end, which is that purpose or objective that we're aiming, that we do toward, so too here we ask ourselves, is this a fitting sort of thing to do for a man to lie with the spouse of another? Is just in and of itself an inappropriate act for a human being? That is analyzed and clarified, but what comes out of it is that act objectively, just as, uh, as what is being done is a no-no for a human being. So that you get exceptionless moral norms, which are basically this, that the object of the act is bad, is such that it could never be licitly performed. And this, the Holy Father is saying, there's been confusion about this, and indeed there has. Over the last 25 years, even more, we have heard from many Catholic theologians who have said we have to reassess, or we can reassess, the traditional prohibition, let's say, of fornication or of homosexuality, of adultery, of masturbation, and so forth. Usually it's sexual morality. And when we do, we find that they're not always wrong. It may very well be that in some cases they are permitted. This is what the Holy Father is addressing himself to. And since this is the situation in which we find ourselves, he's perfectly right on this, of course, it's probably well that we talk about these three fonts of morality with reference to how they have been misunderstood. One of the accusations, uh, those who have come under criticism, obviously the encyclical doesn't mention anyone by name, those who are knowledgeable in these matters are able to identify them, but those who felt that their views had come under criticism have responded, and when we return, I want to talk a bit about their response and how it fits in with these traditional three fonts of morality. Well, I mentioned that some of the theologians who felt that their views were the ones being referred to in Veritatis Splendor have responded and have suggested that they never said that it was possible for someone to break an exceptionless moral norm. And of course, there's some sense that this is true. It'd be very difficult to find anyone who is saying it's sometimes morally okay to do what it's never morally okay to do. Of course, no one said that. 
But what we have heard, as I mentioned a moment ago, we've heard from any number of moral theologians that there are occasions when fornication would be morally okay, permitted. There are occasions when adultery would not be condemned or homosexual activity and the like. So it's clear that actions which from time immemorial and nothing has changed are regarded as exceptionless, that these are acts that could never be performed illicitly by a human agent. We've been told by uh, some moral theologians that sometimes it's okay to do them. So what's going on here? What is the nature of the misunderstanding? It turns, as the Holy Father points out, it turns on the notion of what we mean by the object of an action. And some of those who have responded to the Holy Father have gone so far as to suggest that he and the church, the magisterium, have one understanding of the object of an act when it's a matter of sexual morality and another understanding when it's a matter of other moral questions. A somewhat invidious suggestion as if there's some kind of sexual repression going on in the Vatican that leads to these documents, which of course reiterate uh, the most traditional moral doctrine imaginable. So we have to ask, well, what is it that the critics think is meant by the object of the moral act when these documents are saying that you can never do such and such a thing licitly? And the suggestion is actually made by several moral theologians that what the church has in mind when it condemns actions always and everywhere is the physical act, the one that we described algebraically before that A takes the life of B, or this, a man lies with a woman, that that's being condemned. This is an extraordinary accusation and understanding because, of course, uh, if that is what the prohibition uh, bore upon, that would pretty well rule out marriage in the case of the prohibition of adultery if the prohibition is taken to be simply a man lies with a woman. What is condemned is a man lying with the spouse of another, or a woman lying with the spouse of another, someone lying with another spouse, I suppose would be sufficient. And that is in and of itself wrong. That is in and of itself wrong. And what uh, the theologians who are the target of Veritatis Splendor have wanted to do is to introduce into that description of the object the purpose for which the person is acting, or his motive, as one of them uh, has suggested. So we don't really know what to make of the action of uh, someone sleeping with another spouse until we know what they're up to in the sense of some uh, motive and so on. Maybe they're solacing someone who's lonely and so forth. Suggestions like that are actually made, and that, that somehow makes the act all right. That's exactly what the Holy Father is pointing to. That kind of objective, and certainly taken just as such, giving comfort to the sorrowful, is not a reprehensible thing to do, but this is not a way to do it. Huh? And building that into the description of the object of the act simply doesn't help. So that it seems to me that the accused in this matter, to put it rather dramatically, are fairly accused and their views are indeed faulty in the way in which the encyclical has pointed out. So that these three fonts of morality and those who come up with exceptions to exceptionless norms in the traditional sense of uh, understanding of exceptionless norms operate with these concepts. Most of the moral theologians in question in several senses were taught uh, this traditional morality and indeed many of them were very faithful and illuminating interpreters of it in the early parts of their career. But even now they will use this terminology but as I'm suggesting they alter the meaning of the object of the act and as, as one might put it smuggle into the object of the act the end and suggest that somehow that makes for a different thing being done. 
but uh, I perhaps have said enough about that. That is to try to make an action which is objectively wrong okay because of the motive for which it is done. And one of the most basic principles of Catholic morality, reiterated particularly by the Catechism, is that we cannot do evil in order that good might result. So, this somewhat polemical, but polemical only to the degree that the Veritatis Splendor is polemical, is perhaps a way, dialectically useful way, of getting clear as to what is meant and what is not meant by the object of an act. It is, of course, the way in which we understand things dialectically to consider what are the alternatives to what we're inclined to think, what are the objections to it, could those objections be met, and if they can, then the position that the answer that looked good to us would stand. If the objections can't be met, we have to rethink our position. That simply is the rhythm of the mind. That is uh, what Plato called the soul's conversation with itself. It is what goes on in the Platonic dialogues. I say this, and you say, well, what are you going to make of this? And we go back and forth uh, in that way. In the Middle Ages, the disputed questions and the quadlibital question were the university occasion for that kind of open, public, argumentative exchange to go on, and it explains the literary form of the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, which, as I mentioned on an earlier occasion, asks a question and then proposes an answer, and then right away gives a lot of reasons why that answer is wrong, and then argues on behalf of the original answer, and then comes back to respond to the difficulties that were raised. So that what emerges then is a position that is understood and sustained against interesting and possible alternatives to it. So to here, dialectically, I don't want to be polemical, but just dialectically it's useful to see alternative understandings of object, particularly the object of the act, and see why it is that Veritatis Splendor rightly takes objection to these latter-day understandings of the object of an act. When we consider such discussions as this, that is, exceptionless moral precepts, by and large, we're, we're talking about what we must not do, what we ought not do. And if we look at the Decalogue, by and large, we're being told what we shouldn't do. And this is a very important fact about morality. We have to address, first of all, our inclination to drift away from the good that we know. Uh, so that we have to be constantly reminded, if you do that, you are shorting out the whole moral order. Uh, this is a kind of action which is never permissible can, uh, for a human being. It always thwarts our good. So that these negative precepts, one, they address the results of original sin in us, our inclination to do the wrong thing. We always have to be reined in and checked. But they serve to sort of give the parameters of the moral order. But that's precisely what they do. It would be, I think, a very diminished sense of morality to think of it as merely the observation of negative precepts of not doing certain things. The point of the negative precepts is to release us, so to speak, for the affirmative pursuit of the good. What the negative precepts do is to identify certain kinds of conduct which thwart the human good. That being made clear, and when we get our lives in order so that we're not violating those, then we might say the real interesting part of the moral life can begin, the pursuit of the good. And when we think of affirmative precepts, this has long been noticed, we don't get the same kind of precise information that we get with the negative precepts, and for a very good reason. For example, if you think of the affirmative precept, be just or be temperate, or be courageous. As soon as we think of those things, an ideal is put before us, and we realize that there are lots of legitimate ways in which that ideal can be realized or aimed at. 
that its incorporation into our lives is something that is going to make us perhaps very different from others who are incorporating it into their lives. So that the pursuit of the good, far from homogenizing uh, human agents, we might say is what differentiates them from one another more and more in an interesting way. Not the kind of difference between acting well and acting badly, but just the different modalities of acting well. The great heroes, natural heroes of human history, who rightly are put before us as models of conduct, look very different from one another. And certainly if we think of the canon of the saints, those models of the Christian life that the church has put before us and celebrates through the liturgical year, they are models of what the Christian life, and yet they're different from one another. They give us some sense of the variety and difference and inexhaustibility, we might say, of the Christian ideal. And all things being, all balanced proportions being guarded, so it is with the moral life. For each human being to pursue in his own life, and of course that means with reference to others, the moral good is to take on an individuality, a kind of distinctiveness, so that we don't think, well, we've got one good person, what's the point of having another one? It's just sort of redundant. The fact of the matter seems to be just the opposite, reminiscent perhaps of Tolstoy's phrase that all unhappy families are alike and happy families are happy in different ways. When we move to the affirmative, to the good, that's where we get an interesting diversity. There's a depressing sameness in evil. There's a kind of homogenization when we give in to moral evil, when we violate the moral order by violating exceptionless moral precept. So we could say, I think, that the point of the gospel story, to go back to that, and the point of Veritatis Splendor, and the point of moral philosophy, is to go beyond the negative. Not that the negatives are unimportant. Given our condition, they're essential to remind us again of the limits of moral discourse of the moral order. To do that kind of action is simply to thwart the moral order. But again, that being taken care of, we have before us then an ideal that just draws us forward in its inexhaustibility. How could any one action do anything but sort of imitate what we mean by justice itself? How could any act of courage exhaust the possibilities of courage? And so too, we might say in Christian morality, how could any human or created act do much more than palely reflect the goodness that God is? This is one of the most dramatic differences, of course, between Christian morality and philosophical morality, moral philosophy. Here the ideals tends to be kind of abstract. It's embodied in certain individuals, heroic individuals, and so forth. But there isn't any sense of goodness as such, or something that would embody goodness as such. Or is there? I mentioned earlier that Aristotle, a pagan philosopher, a Macedonian living in 4th century Athens, a student of Plato and so forth, one of the great forces in Western culture, so much so that as Cardinal Newman said, when we read Aristotle, we tend to think that we're hearing ourselves think. We're all sort of naturaliter Aristotelians. Aristotle, as I mentioned before, when he's sorting out the uh, virtues that make up the human good, that aim at constituents of the human good, arranges them in a certain way and somewhat surprisingly says that contemplation of what? Of the divine is the ultimate purpose of human life, even here below. And of course he doesn't make a distinction between here below and elsewhere, but of human life. Contemplation of the divine is the ultimate. So that you could say that in some instances of pagan philosophy, in accounts of morality, there is the sense that finally the whole point 
of a human life is to order itself to the divine, to the source of its being, to the cause of its being, to the source of all of the goodness in the world around us. So that, as I mentioned earlier, the fathers of the church who knew Plato better than they knew Aristotle were just overwhelmed by the sense that they find in Plato that the point of a human life is to turn away from the evanescent and passing things of this world and attend to what is permanent and eternal, the realm of ideas. And at least in the middle books of the Republic, Plato speaks of a kind of fusion of the one and the true and the beautiful. So that there is this sense, uh, kind of adumbration at least, of uh, the discussion of the divine attributes in the Christian tradition. So it may very well be that again we have a kind of imperfect intimation in philosophy of what we have fully and perfectly presented to us in the Christian dispensation. That finally the point of the moral life is not just busy action, we're necessarily involved in that at all times but for the sake of something further attending to the divine. This in Aristotelian philosophy, of course, would mean metaphysics, but there are lots of ways, I, it, it's occurred to me, that one gets these intimations of the divine and tends to think of his life in terms of this wider sense. When you go to the remains of an old Greek city, Syracuse in Sicily would be an example, you're struck by the centrale, or Agrigento, you're struck by the centrality of the theater in the town. And if you think of Greek tragedy, if you think of Greek drama, certainly this is a kind of dramatic meditation on the human condition such that human actions are always seen against a divine backdrop or behind the, with the background of the divine operating. And it wouldn't be too fanciful, I don't think, to suggest that for most people, and including philosophers most of the time, it is through art, through drama, through fiction, that we uh, have the occasion to reflect on the ultimate transcendent significance of human action. I mentioned that remarkable close of Thornton Wilder's novel, The Eighth Day, in which there's a little meditation of that kind. So, contemplation would be the term of the moral life, both philosophically in this life, some intimation of it through metaphysics would be the most obvious case, but as I'm suggesting, there are other aesthetic ways in which most of us, most of the time, would dwell on this transcendent significance. And indeed, when we look at what Aristotle has to say about contemplation, one of the things he insists upon is that it's something that we can only fitfully engage in. It's not the case that when we distinguish, as Thomas does in the Summa, between the active life and the contemplative life, that we can think of some people who are just busy, 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 uh, sort of mindlessly acting on the one hand, and others who are simply contemplating or praying on the other and doing nothing else. Every life is a combination of the active and the contemplative, and the two lives are distinguished more in terms of the greater proportion of the one than the other. Aristotle makes the obvious observation that if we sought to devote ourselves solely to contemplation, a number of things would intervene, like sleep and tiredness and the need to go eat and maybe to get shelter and so forth, so that in order to contemplate, there are a lot of other things that we would have to do. Both Plato and Aristotle think of the arrangement of the city as making it possible for these other more transcendent activities to take place. And that's not simply that everyone else is sort of subservient and ought to be subsidizing the activity of the philosophical class. 
but that for all of the citizens there should be, as in the case of the drama, in the case of the theater, there should be some access to reflection on the transcendent character of life. Most people don't need any urging to do this in uh, just about any McDonald's in the country. If you listen to people talking at the counter and in other places where more stimulating beverages are served, you find people talking about what it all means and what the purpose of life is or reflecting on their own activity or the activities of others and finding in it a, a mystery, a deep mystery, as to how lives turn out. And as I suggested earlier in distinguishing between the moral life and life taken in its biographical amplitude, it's in the sense of the imperfect control that we have over our lives that most of us get an intimation of the divine. Just as in that story from Greek tragedy that we looked at, when Oedipus and Jocasta get caught up in this situation, that isn't what they intend, that isn't what they're doing, but something is going on that they didn't intend. And the suggestion of the playwright is that that has a meaning beyond the meaning that is put into the scene by the human agents. So that's what I mean by a kind of intimation of a transcendent meaning. This has been a sketch of moral philosophy, and I emphasize sketch. There are several ways in which one might have done this. I might have just taken a series of moral problems that are familiar to us from our own lives and from our situation, from the society in which we live, and analyze those, things that are pressing like euthanasia. What are we to make of someone like Dr. Kevorkian who comes on as if he's performing a great benefit to mankind? What do we make of people, champions of abortion, who look upon this as a great social benefit and so forth? It would be possible to take up individual questions like that in vitro fertilization. And out of the discussion, we would have to be fashioning norms or principles of appraisal. And so this would be a kind of more inductive way to arrive at a moral system or theory. The other way is the way that we've pursued, and that is to try to get the structure of the moral theory first, and then we have the wherewithal to go on and talk about a particular problem. This is an introduction. If you get the syllabus for this course, you'll find a reading list, you'll find the references to the various passages that I have explicitly referred to, and a lot of others that will both clarify what I have so feebly tried to put before you and also indicate how you go on from here. That's the point of an introduction, not to wrap something up, but to be a kind of opening of a door into an area which is an extremely fascinating one. And it leads into that enormous and many-roomed mansion, which is philosophy, where one can wander for a lifetime with great pleasure and profit. This is a mini-course in uh, what we're calling the International Catholic University, which aims to make available to a very wide audience, those who can't go to campuses and so forth, not only the rudiments, but uh, eventually all of the elements of a Catholic higher education and even beyond into graduate programs. We're embarked here on a very ambitious task, one that is possible now because of various electronic means which will enable us to make such courses as this available in a variety of ways, by audio, of course, but by computer, so that one can follow courses that will be offered by this International Catholic University at one's own pace and on one's own computer. And we will be offering, when we get to the full tilt, semester-long courses, we will be offering means of interaction with the professor and, of course, testing if credits are to be achieved. 
So we hope to fill here a need. We live at a time, I have talked about this in a series that you will have seen, I hope, on Mother Angelica's channel, EWTN, out of the heart of the church, talking about the nature of a Catholic university and ex cordia ecclesiae, a document, a recent document on a Catholic university, the situation on the campuses of Catholic colleges and universities, which seems to be somewhat, uh, there seems to be a gap between that and the ideal repeated in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, and those lectures then culminate in an announcement of this project of bringing together teachers from a variety of campuses across the country, and not only in this country, and making them available, the best of the best, to those who want to pursue these topics simply for their own sake, or those who want to pursue them with an eye to uh, reach uh, to achieving credits and uh, attaining degrees. So it'll be a kind of virtual Catholic university, we can say, using a computer term which also has scholastic echoes. It will be as good as a university, but maybe in a sense better, because we will have the creme de la creme from the point of view of the staff, and it will be available to interested parties wherever they are and at their own particular pace. So I conclude then these lectures with that reminder that this is the first effort in a project which is being launched even as we speak, the uh, outcome of which, of course, as they used to say in the marriage ceremony when it was all over, and the rest is in the hands of God. And so it is with the International Catholic University, but we have the inestimable stimulus of Mother Angelica and her staff and studios here. This is Ralph McInerney saying goodbye. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.